If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn them to 1 Peter. We'll continue looking at this passage for the next probably several months. 1 Peter, we're going to be reading the first 12 verses, although we won't be looking at all of them. We're only going to look at one portion this morning. Please hear the word of God. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at this book of uh, 1 Peter, which is a letter from the the great apostle Peter, uh, to the churches that were scattered throughout Asia, which is today uh, modern-day Turkey. The uh, churches that were there were suffering, as you heard in the passage, a certain degree of persecution, although the persecution was not what came later, some years later, under the Emperor Nero. This was an earlier persecution, and it was more local, uh, more relational, mostly in villages and towns where people were, were becoming Christians, and people that were there Uh, In the village, didn't understand uh, what was going on. This was a new religion. They really didn't get it. And the Christians were very different. They weren't obnoxious like they are today. They were actually more more normal and didn't fit in quite the way we do here in the United States, which is unfortunate, I think, and and uh, to our detriment. Uh, We'll talk more about that when we get into the part where we talk about actually talk about suffering. the, the reality of their persecution had a lot of uh, effect on the way they lived their lives. And so Peter wrote this letter to them to encourage them. And in the passage, we're going to look at just a few verses, 3 through 5 this morning, about being born again into a living hope. 
being born again into a living hope. So let me give you a very quick outline and we'll get going here. A new life, a life of worship, and a life of living hope. A new life, a life of worship, and a life of living hope. When you read this, probably one of the first questions that comes to um, an ordinary person who's perhaps not been in the church and doesn't know all the secret words and the uh, vernacular that we use, what does it mean to be born again? And many of you that have been Christians for some time, or may, sometime, maybe you're a new Christian, I don't know, you have an idea in your mind what it is to be born again. You've heard preachers talk about it on TV, and, and so uh, I'm going to give you my take on it, and I hope it will help you, because I think a lot of times when we think about being born again, we, we think it's sort of like a new start, a new lease on life, maybe a second chance. Maybe, you know, if I get born again, I get a, a second chance. But what the Apostle Peter's talking about, and what the Apostle Paul spoke about, and what John famously spoke about in uh, John chapter 3, which is familiar to many people, even if they're not believers, about what it is to be born again. John used a word in his gospel that we were born from above. Now Peter uses a different word, same root, but a different word, and it means to be born over, to be born again, or born a second time. And what Peter and what Paul and what John are referring to is not just a second chance. It's not just a way to start over. It's not a clean slate. It is a new life. In other words, what happens to a Christian believer or a person, let's say a person comes to the end of themselves and they cry out to God, Lord have mercy on me a sinner. And God saves that person. They are put to death. They're literally put to death. Now, their physical body stays living, but their inner man, their spiritual man, is put to death, and a new life is given to them. Completely new. Now, the problem comes is as we live that new life, and those of you that are Christians, you know, that we start struggling. We start struggling with our life. We think, how can I really be born again? How can I be born anew? When I'm still thinking the things I think and doing the things I do and I'm still sinning, what is really going on? And it will help you immensely if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it'll help you to understand what us crazy Christians are talking about when we say born again. And maybe it's something you want to embrace for your life. But if you're a Christian and you're struggling, this will help you to make sense of your Christianity. What does it mean to be born again? A new life, a new being, a new identity. And what I want to dissuade you from thinking is it's a new lifestyle. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you have heard that? A new lifestyle. What does that mean, a new lifestyle? It's crazy. You're talking about something else if you say lifestyle. We're talking about a new life, a new identity, completely reborn. Look at the very first part of this passage. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Look at what the basis of this new life is. The basis of it, the very beginning, the starting point, the seminal point of your new life is His Great mercy. He uses a wonderful Greek word here called eleos, is mercy. It means this, listen carefully, it means to have pity 
uh, to have compassion. It's a pardoning grace because it's needed. In other words, right away, Peter is saying, look, we have a problem with God. Every human being has a problem with God. And so we need mercy. We need His pardoning grace. Every religion teaches that we have a relationship with God, whatever God is, He, she, or it, we have a relationship with that God, whatever He, she, or it is, based on our merit, based on our good deeds, our moral living. And we kind of define what that is for ourselves. Christianity, authentic, historic Christianity, is completely different. Authentic, historic Christianity says, no, the basis for your relationship with God is not what you do for Him to get Him to like you. It's something radically different. It's His mercy. And that brings us to great humility. If if you're willing to accept that and, and receive that word into your life, mercy, then you have to take what it means. It means that we have sinned against God and we need Him to pardon us. We need His forgiveness. And I don't know anybody, any human being, apart from Jesus Christ, who does not need that mercy. And so there you are. The basis of his relationship to human beings in authentic, historic Christianity is his great mercy, his pity, his compassion, his sympathy. Now listen to this. His sympathy and his empathy. Let me give you very quickly what that means because it's enormously important. Sympathy, we often get the words confused or think they mean the same thing. Look in a dictionary. Basically, it's this. Sympathy is compassion, sorrow, or pity for the hardships of another. Okay, you with me? It's, it's you looking at someone and having pity and sorrow for them. You feel bad for them from the outside. You look into their life and you say, boy, I have sympathy for them. Poor them. Empathy is different. Empathy is compassion, sorrow, and pity as if you were them. Okay? It's it's actually walking in their shoes. It's getting inside their skin. Do you realize that if we understood the realities of sympathy and empathy and really practice them, that we would treat people completely different? We wouldn't be, the, the, the news media would not be calling Christians hateful. They would, be calling us, they would be calling us amazing. Look at those people they love. In fact, we should be loving those that disagree with us the most instead of wanting to see their blood shed. And I'll tell you, in our political climate in the United States, it's getting horrific. And I have been, I call throughout the book of Joel, when we looked at that a few weeks ago. I called upon you, the people of Christ the King, little church, small church here on the west side, be different. Step up, grow up, be really Christians. So that people will actually look at you and say, wow, you know, they are tolerant. In fact, they're more tolerant than anyone. Tolerant of sin? No. But tolerant? Do you not see yourself as broken? Do you not see yourself as needing the mercy of God? Do you not see yourself first before you point the eye at some, the, the finger at someone else and try to pull the little sticker out of their eye? You don't see the log in your own eye? What kind of people are we? American Christianity, folks, is in deep trouble. And we're going to see it week by week as we look at 1 Peter. 
Because you'll be able to contrast your life here in America with the life of the majority of people on planet Earth that claim to be Christians. And their life is not like ours. Make no mistake. Persecution is not going to target and having somebody say to you, Oh, happy holidays. And all the Christians want to ring. Oh, that's so persecuted, so terrible. They're persecuting us Christians. They won't say Merry Christmas. Are you crazy? Or like one author said, the way that Christians in America think they're really expressing their faith is to go get lunch at Chick-fil-A. It's funny. It's hilarious. It's sad. It wants, you want to cry if you really think about it. If you read your Bible, folks, you will see that is absolutely reprehensible. That that's what we think persecution is or expressing our faith. Well, we'll go further into it. It's pity. It's sympathy and compassion. It is empathy. And God has shown that to you. And we are then to just turn it right around and show it to others. Nobody is going to come to Jesus because we scold them. They're going to come to Jesus because we love them. Really. That's why... Did you come to... Is anyone here, if you raise your hand, we're going to gather around you and embarrass you and pray for you. (laughs) Did anyone here come to Jesus because somebody shook their finger and scolded them about what a bad person they were? But I'll bet every one of you can tell your story about somebody loving you and caring for you deeply. And then at some point, God revealing Himself to you in the person of His Son and embracing you with kindness. Not not holding His nose, but showing you mercy. The word mercy, eleos, means the bowels are moved. There's this interior, almost gut-wrenching love and mercy. That's what it is. It's the delight. Those you ladies who have given birth, listen. It's the delight of a mother giving birth at the expense of her own pain and suffering. The delight of a mother giving birth at the expense of her own pain and suffering. This is how God regenerates, gives new birth to those of us who are Christians. It costs him something to do it. Listen to what the the Old Testament has to say. Zion said, the people in Zion said to God, The Lord has forsaken me, forgotten me. This is what people were saying in the Old Testament days. Oh, God has forgotten us. He doesn't really love us. And listen to the answer of God. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion? Even those may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. This is God speaking. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am a God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. And this was to a people who had had done some of the most horrific things in human history. And God says to them, 
I'll never forget you. I'll never leave you. I love you. Now, if he'll say that to them, he'll say it to you and me. My pastor in Florida, Mike Malone, I, I never forget this. Monty V and I just started going to St. Paul's Presbyterian Church in Orlando. And one of the first sermons that Mike preached, he said this. The cross does not secure for you God's love. The cross does not secure for you God's love. Rather, God's love secured for you the cross. Do you see the difference? It's all the difference in the world. If the cross is what makes God love you, then He's holding His nose. But if instead, like John 3.16, most famous Bible verse in the world, right? If that's true, then God already loves you. And He loves you in this way. That He spends His best and His brightest, His glorious Son. He actually spends it to get you. That's what it means to be born again. That's the basis of our new life, is God's rich mercy. What's the source of the new life? That's the basis. What's the source of our new life? It's the divine initiative. It's what we talked about last week. It's the, uh, uh, the word that Christians don't like to hear, don't like to talk about. It's election. It's predestination. It's that God is, God is actually choosing who He wants to be His. Now, I know that that's uncomfortable, and if it doesn't bother you, I want you to come see me, because it should bother you. It should cause discomfort. But I explained last week that he's not picking and choosing randomly or arbitrarily. He has a purpose and a plan for every person that he chooses. And he doesn't skip over somebody because he doesn't like them. But he does show mercy to certain people. And when he does, we should not carp and complain about, well, you know, how come he doesn't just do that for everybody? I don't know. I don't even know why he did it for me. In fact, I'm most surprised. If you've been coming to Christ the King, you know I'm the first one to say I don't deserve this. Every day of my life I know I don't deserve it. And so should you. But instead of carping and complaining about why God is so unfair, let's go out and share God's love. How about that? Let's go share the good news of the Gospel. Let's go tell people, you must be born again. And invite them to come and join this amazing man, Jesus Christ. The source is the divine initiative. Peter's very clear. He caused us to be born again. God does something. We call it the divine initiative. He calls, in, in modern Christianity in America, we say things like this. I accepted Jesus Christ. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, actually there is a lot wrong with it. You know, you can accept Jesus Christ, but the only reason that you accept, whatever that means, ac- accept Jesus Christ, the only reason is because He has already accepted you. That's what Peter's saying. He's caused you to be born again. And so, yes, you embrace Christ. Yes, you get your arms around uh, Him and, get, and give your heart to Him. Yes, of course. But always recognize that by His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He has actually done something. Look, I don't know... Uh, what happened to Evelyn this morning? One thing I know is this. I don't know if she got born I don't know if she was born again this morning. She may have been. John the Baptist was before he was born. 
He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah was before he was born. So it could have happened to Evelyn this morning when we baptized her. She may have been born again. Who knows? One thing I do know is that if any of us are born again, anybody, and this goes for everyone in this room, if you're born again, it is because He caused it, not because you said, eh, I think I'll add Him to my already wonderful life. And He can be my co-pilot. Bumper sticker theology. That's what we have in America. Bumper sticker theology. God is my co-pilot. Well, really? Wait till the plane starts going down. You will want to give Him the controls. You are not going to want to be, have Him in the other seat. I accept Jesus. Or Je- Why does it matter? What does it matter? Why are you making such a big deal? Listen. It's a new life based on, based on mercy. Listen. Mercy, not merit. Otherwise, you can lose it. Do you realize that? If it's based on merit, if you're a relationship with God, like every religion in the world says, if it's based on merit, you can lose it. Because what happens when the wheels come off and you mess up, like I did this morning? That's actually funny, folks. Okay. Look, we mess up. What happens then? Is your relationship with God on hold until you get things right with Him? Well, welcome to a horrible religion. That is why Christianity, to many people, is so horrific. i got to make myself right to get back in His good graces. Well, you're not talking about grace. You're talking about merit. And so if our relationship is based on merit and not mercy... You must live in constant fear and you must live in constant trying to find ways to gin up lots of good works to balance out your your bad because you're living in a scale, a balance. And that's what the whole world thinks. That I'm living in a balance. God's going to weigh me at the end of the My good deeds outweigh my bad. Who wants to live like that? I don't. I already know, I'm 61 years old, and I already know that my bad deeds far outweigh my good, and I don't have enough time left to make up for it. So I must, I must resort to mercy. You see, I don't have a choice. And I love that about my God. I love that I can go to Him and cry out and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he doesn't hold his nose and say, okay, I'll forgive you. No, he loves, embraces me. He says, look at the cross. Look, what I, look how I love you. Look at it. Amazing. It's a new identity. We are children, not merely creatures. We are actually children. Now, we have a lot of families in our church. We have lots of kids in our church. Do, would any of your parents, any of you parents, Ever say to your children, I disown you, I don't love you anymore. I mean, your child could become an axe murderer and you would still go visit them in prison, yes? I mean, we're not talking about the weird stuff. We're talking about real people. You would never, ever disown your children. You would correct them, you would draw, you'd you'd chase them down if you had to. God is like that, but even more. He's more like that than you are. He has incredible compassion. Inside He is moved. We are children, not merely creatures. It's adoption. 
He doesn't just forgive us and then say, okay, now go do better. Go, go get out there and do better. I'm adopting you, but now I want you to really do better. No, he adopts us and says, you're mine forever and ever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Be free. Go live free. Does that mean that we can go sin all we want? Well, of course not. What kind of crazy thinking is that? You see, we're pitting grace against God's law. They never were meant to be in conflict. They're meant to work together. The grace of God is what gets us into His family, and the law of God shows us how to live in that family. And the result of this new life is new creation. It is not a, a, a do-over. It's not just getting a second chance. It's actually a new creation. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And then Paul says, Behold! Exclamation! Behold! All things are new. All things are new. You are a new creation. In Jesus Christ. And the outworking of that, the Apostle Peter tells us, is worship. A life filled with awe and adoration and thankfulness. A profound humility. If you want to, if you want to know if somebody's really a Christian, look and see how humble, how they live out their humility. Do they think, about, do they think less of themselves, as C.S. Lewis said, do they think less of themselves or... Do they actually think uh, of themselves less? See, one is just pride in another form. Oh, I'm the worst person in the world. I'm the worst person I know. I'm the most terrible. I'm a worm. I'm a dog. I'm this. I'm that. Whatever adjectives you want to use. I'm horrible. And many of you are. But when you say that over and over again, that's, not, that's, just a, that's just another kind of pride. Look at how bad I am. But when you just don't think about yourself much, you think less, you don't think less of yourself, you think about yourselves less, and you start thinking about others, and you start thinking about Jesus, your Savior, and you think about God, and think about the beauty of this creation God has given us, and how we can make the world around us better, especially for those that are not like us. Hey, that's novel, right? Didn't Jesus come and do that for you? Didn't He come and make it really great for you who was not like Him at all? How dare we look down our nose at other people from a different political party or a different persuasion or a different religion? How dare we when the God of the universe condescended to come down here among us who were nothing like Him and get in our skin, wear our clothes, feel our pain, die, like we die. How dare we? That's what new birth is all about. It's a life of worship. Out of the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable. You see, when, when Paul and Peter and the apostles were writing these wonderful letters, they would, they, they're, they're, they're into their writing. You know, they're writing and they're writing and they, they're hitting a great spot and they're writing this paragraph and they go, oh my gosh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what I'm about to say is blowing me away. He can't, they can't restrain themselves. They're like Paul. He's writing along. You can read it in uh, Romans chapter 11. He's writing and writing. And all of a sudden, he just breaks out into praise right on the page. 
How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? He can't contain himself and he just keeps writing. It's a life of worship. All of life is worship. Now, I've said this so many times at Christ the King, I don't want to take time to, to talk about it. But folks, we believe in our church here at Christ the King and in our, our Reformed faith for sure, that all of life is worship. In other words, everything you do is worship to God. Sin notwithstanding. Sin's different. Now if you say, oh my sin is worship, no, you're in trouble, please come see me. In fact, don't come see me, go see the elders, because I don't want to deal with that. That's, that's really crazy. No, sin is not worship, but, but when you, I've told Dave Fink, when he paints these beautiful paintings, that's worship. When you go to a great restaurant with friends and you're enjoying a glass of wine and you're having great conversation and talking about life and what it's... That's worship. That's a form of worship. When you're, you, you're, you, you bring your baby to church to be baptized, to present them to the Lord and apply the sign of God's covenant mercy to them, which is water and Holy Spirit. When you, apply, when you do that, it's worship. All of life is worship. And so everything that we do is worship. Now Sunday morning is a different kind of worship, just like other things are other kinds of worship. But it's all worship. And we need all those kinds of worship to be whole human beings. Otherwise we bifurcate or we, we become uh, schizophrenic Christians. We, we, we secularize part of our lives and we sacredize, if that's even a word, it's part of our life. Well, Sunday morning is sacred, and I do sacred things, and I do religious stuff, and all that. But the rest of my life, well, that's secular, that's not. The, the reformers absolutely rejected that. And they said, all of life is sacred. It, uh, your calling, your work is sacred before God. So the Reformation resisted the idea that there was a sacred clergy, a sacred, although I am sacred much more than you. Uh, <laughs> a sacred clergy, and a secular laity. They rejected that. And they said everyone is called, everyone has voca, the calling on their life. And so if you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, you can worship God. If you're a clergy like me, you worship God. We're all worshiping God. We're just in different roles. But all of life is worship. And thirdly, what holds that together? Well, it's a living hope. Let me do this quickly. A living hope. It's our future. We are born again into a living hope. And this was, Peter was doing something, I hope I can do this quickly because I don't want to keep you over long this morning, but Peter was actually speaking to the Greek world that he lived in, which had a very dead hope. A living hope versus a dead hope, or what we would call in our 21st century, hopelessness. I don't know how many people... In our day, in the 21st century, with iPhones and iPads and all our technology and, and loads of money and food, I mean, look, we're all overweight. And yet we are not happy. We live lives of hopelessness. What in the world is going on, folks? How can we be hopeless? Even in church you find people. I know I have talked to many of you about the upcoming election and many of you are hopeless because there just doesn't seem to be any good candidates. Well, you know what? So what? Did God promise you a good, nice life in America? Maybe not. Maybe some hard times are coming. I'm going to predict they are. I think we're going to have some hard times. 
And I hope that people look at Christ the King and look at the people in this church and say, you know what, these people are different. They're handling things differently. I want to know what's going on over there. Because if we're going to wring our hands about the political candidates and the political climate and, oh, it's all going downhill, then you're not speaking like a Christian. You're speaking like a Republican. <laughs> or like a Democrat. Or like a Libertarian. Whatever. Pick your poison. doesn't matter. But you've made something or someone more sovereign than Almighty God. Yes? Yes? Yes. We are not people who are hopeless. We are people that have hope. You know, Sophocles, the, the writer of the, uh, uh, the play Oedipus, said this. Listen, it is best not to be born at all. And second best is to die at birth. That was the Greek thinking. Better not to be born at all. And second best, well, if you've got to be born better to die at birth. And this is the world that the Apostle Paul had the nerve to say, we are born again into a living, a lively, vibrant, robust hope. A hope that no one else can understand until you're inside and you look at the, at, from the inside out and you see, wow, I have real, true hope. Christian hope. Listen to what commentator Karen, Karen Job, she's written a, a wonderful commentary which I'm using uh, a lot for this series. Christian hope is ever living because Christ is ever living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past. The resurrection of Jesus and it is guaranteeing us a future because Christ lives forevermore. Tim Keller says, what you believe about the past, what you believe about the future, determines what you think about your past and how you live in the present. What you believe about the future. Look, if you're going to die, if there's nothing after you die, then your life is basically meaningless, right? You're just going to die and go into the ground and become uh, fertilizer. So life has no meaning. Utterly no meaning. So Jesus said this to that belief. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Go ahead. If that's it, eat, drink, and be merry. But Christianity says, no, no, we're born again into a living hope. There is actually a future. A future world. Not heaven, not angels and harps and wings and all that. Here. It's why we need to invest deeply here in our, our world into relationships because we're coming back to this world someday. It's going to be our world, our home. And God is going to live with us. Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven and we're going to live together. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the right time. He says, look at what you've got waiting for you. So if you're suffering, and he's talking to people that are really suffering, hold on, don't give up. Live in hope, live in joy. Let the joy bubble out of your life even when times are bad, especially when times are bad. So how do you put all this together? Well, let me do it quickly. 
You remember sympathy and empathy? Having sympathy for and empathy as? Well, folks, that is the story of the Gospel. That is the simple story of Christianity. In the Incarnation, Jesus Christ, did, God did not just look at us from the outside and say, oh, I feel really sorry for them. In the Incarnation, He came down here. He got in our skin. He became a baby. He was almost killed. He was exiled out of the land of promise and into the land of Egypt. He didn't have a place to lay His head. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came down and He understood what it was to be hungry, to be poor, to be hated, to be mocked for being a, 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 a child of an unwed mother. And His parentage, His father's uh, parentage was questioned in His entire life. He knew what it was, folks, to live like we do, to have pain, sorrow, to feel. Jesus, in the garden, in His betrayal, in the false trial that He had to endure, He had done nothing. He went to trial and was found guilty. And on the cross, He's crushed by wrath. The only true innocent that ever lived is crushed. How do you live a living hope? You live it looking unto Jesus. Listen, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its change, its, its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You see, Jesus was looking forward, it says in Hebrews 11, to a joy that was set before Him. He had to live just like you and I, with a living hope, a hope of a future, and a future that included you and I. In fact, that's the purpose of His life. That's why He came. He came to rescue those who were hopeless, who had no hope, to give them a living hope. And He's speaking to people in Asia Minor who are suffering persecution. And He's talking to you today as well. Those of you who are suffering, maybe not persecution like they would, but suffering with doubt and fear, and maybe sin that's weighing your life down, or insecurity, or maybe you're just not sure about what's going to happen. Whatever that is, He came so that you could... It doesn't mean you escape this world and go into la-la land. It means that you actually engage the world without fear. He can take the fear away and replace it with joy. Why? Because He came for us. Because He had sympathy. And He came as us to die on the cross in our place as us a substitute for you and for me. Will you trust Him? Will you put your life in His hands? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your loving kindness and Your tender, tender mercy. A mercy that uh, we sometimes can't even understand or, or embrace. I pray that You will help us, that You will save us, and that You will indeed have mercy on us, O oh God, by Your grace. Amen.